Please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to preach a sermon this morning that I preached to you three years ago. And I'm, I'll, I will probably preach it three years from now. How many of you were actually here three years ago, 2004, September? And so let me see the rest. How many of you were not here 3,000 3, years ago? Three years ago. All right. So this is a uh, this is something that we are going to continue to do. And the passage that I'm going to deal with in First Thessalonians is about sexual immorality. We live in a culture that has normalized and celebrated and glorified sexual immorality. And as I look out on this congregation and see who's here, um, most of the people in this congregation have grown up in an age where all of the images, all of the words, all of the assumptions, all of the associations um, of our culture have been constantly in the direction of sexual immorality. And we have people in this room who've never known um, what it was not to have the Internet at your fingertips, where in the privacy of your home or your office, you could find anything and everything that you wanted. Some of you remember uh, days when that wasn't the case, right? A few of you. <laughs> Most of us have been soaked in this from birth. And somehow we think we're not affected by it. I guarantee you we are affected by it. All of our assumptions about what is normal are probably wrong because of the culture we've lived in and grown up in. So we're constantly flooded with pictures and words and songs and advertisements that make sexual immorality seem normal or even healthy. Certainly unavoidable because if everyone is, is doing it, how can it be so wrong? And we don't even see. We don't even see the twistedness and the brokenness of our assumptions. And uh, because we live in the middle of a flood of immorality where every one of us is in danger of being swept away by it. So what do we need? We need constant reminders and warnings. We need constant reality checks. We need, we need constant, um, you know, constantly to be looking at what, what plum is, where, where true north is, constantly coming back. Constantly pushing the reset button that resets us again to what's normal. And um, this passage does that for us. First Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8, shows us, reminds us, filters out all the junk, shows us what true is, and calls us to obedience. Follow along as I read it. I'll be reading from the ESV, and I'm not sure what's on the screen. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, 
that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God does three things in this passage. He gives us three things. He tells us what sexual immorality is. He tells us why to run from it and to escape it. And he tells us how. So first of all, what is it? What is sexual immorality? Paul says in verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That word translated sexual immorality is the same word that we get our word pornography from. And so, some would translate this word fornication. And it simply means any and all forms of unlawful sexual activity. Now, I know that there are children in this service, so I'm going to say things um, that I hope the children will understand. And yet, kids, if you don't understand what I'm saying, you need to go home and ask your parents. And ask them to explain this to you if, you if you need further explanation. What do I mean by unlawful sexual activity? I'm, I'm talking about two people acting as if they were married when they're not married. A man and a woman touching each other and sleeping together in a way God designed only for a man and a woman who are married to each other. Or a man touching a man or a woman touching a woman in ways that God designed only for a man and a woman who are married to each other. So God says that this close, physical, with, with your bodies relationship is for a married man and a married woman only. God says in, in Genesis 2.24, when He made the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, in the garden, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So sexual immorality includes sexual relations before marriage or wrong sexual relations among people who are married. That's what the Bible calls adultery. A married man or a married woman acting like they're married to someone else. So children, kids, it means this. Your mom may not go and live with a man who is not her husband. Your dad may not go and live with another woman as his wife. That's what God means in the seventh commandment, in the ten commandments, when he says you shall not commit adultery. That's what adultery is. But God has a lot more than that in mind, not just outward physical activity when he talks about sexual immorality. He does not think that the only type of sexual sin is the act of sleeping with or touching a man or a woman who is not your husband or wife. Look at the beginning of verse 5. He says, We are to live not in the passion of lust. And so the issue is not just the outward behavior, but also the inward sexual desires that dominate your life in ways they shouldn't. This is what God always does. He, he doesn't just let us have the line be out here on the action. He always draws the line back further than that into the heart. 
into what you want and what you think about, what you fantasize about. Because every, every action that you do on the outside always has something, a beginning on the inside. It doesn't just happen. You know, um, I've heard many people, young people say this, who have fallen into sexual sin. You know, we were just together, you know, and, and you know, we just got, you know, we just kind of got carried away, you know, and we just kind of, you know, it just happened, you know. No, I don't know. Because it doesn't just happen outwardly. It first happens inwardly. And so for us in our culture, that, of course, includes desires that lead to the use of pornography and desires that lead to a fantasy life. And this isn't just for men. This is for women. And if you women are hearing this as, oh, yeah, I'm glad my husband's hearing this or my boyfriend or my son or, or whatever, that's good. But you need to hear it, too, because it's desires, desires that lead you in your mind away from the man or woman that God has given you. So it's desires that lead to pornography, desires that lead to a fantasy life and to the masturbation that's so often embedded in all of that, that's completely inseparable from all of that both for men and for women. And if you think that pornography is an isolated thing, a little, a little sub thing down there, you know, with dirty men in back alleys and big ugly buildings with no windows on back streets where they go, if you think that that's what pornography is and that's where it happens, you're very naive. It is a problem of normal-looking men and women, people that you see every day, people that you probably maybe even live with every day. And you must be aware of it and see it for what it is. I urge all of you men and you women, make it so it can't happen at home. You can come and talk to us about ways to do that. Uh, David... Canfield, raise your hand. This is one of our elders, David Canfield. We've worked a lot together to help men with this problem and to help provide safeguards on computers and things like that. We want to help you. When you come to us with this kind of sin, we won't look at you as if you're weird. You're a sinner, just like us. We want to help you. So, pornography is very widespread. Uh, and it's everywhere. And it's a problem in this church, and in every church. So Paul identifies what sexual immorality is. It's any and all forms of unlawful sexual activity, and it's the internal desires that drive and feed and always result in that activity. If you think that you can look at things on a screen or on a page, but that's, you know, you'll never actually do them then you are a fool. Because you will do them. It's only a matter of time. That's what sexual immorality is. Now, why should we be concerned about it? What's the big deal? Isn't it just normal? Again, this is where we have to constantly recheck our assumptions and make sure that our filter is 
is working. Because what we're told is that this is just the the natural expression of hormones and drives and desires. After all, we're just bodies. Bodies are made up of chemicals. Bodies were made to do things. And it's just normal. Isn't it harmful to repress those desires? Isn't it better to free people from their sexual repression by telling them it's okay to do whatever comes naturally, whatever you feel like doing, whatever your inclinations are, whatever your proclivities are, whatever feels good. That is what we are going to hear from all angles in our culture. That's what you students at our IU are going to hear all the time. After all, we live in the home of the Kinsey Institute. And if you don't know who Alfred Kinsey was and what he stood for and what he did to our country because of his work, then you need to learn about it. Just don't get too close. We have the, the, the uh, largest collection of pornography on, uh, uh, in, in one place here at IU and the Kinsey Institute, and it's celebrated. And we have a lot, uh, the state of our country has a lot to owe to Alfred Kinsey. So it's everywhere. It's in the air we breathe. It's in all of the assumptions. If you think that your assumptions about what normal sexuality are are right, you're probably wrong unless they're coming directly from Scripture. So, is it better to free people from their sexual sexual repression by telling them it's okay to do whatever comes naturally and and whatever feels good? Is Is that where freedom is going to come from? Is it enlightened and progressive and educated to promote people acting like animals with each other? Well, look at God's reasons. What God does here in this passage is he, he gives us reasons for turning away from sexual immorality. He gives us motivations, six of them, to zealously fight the battle against lust and sexual immorality. I want you to see them and grab hold of them and use them. Number one, the motivation of pleasing God. Verse one, he says, finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And then he goes straight into talking about sexual immorality. So the point is, you need, he says, people, remember, we talked to you, we told you about how to please God. Now, I know that you're pleasing God, but you need to please God even more. Sexual purity pleases God. And if you're a Christian... That is exactly what you want. You want to please God. You want the pleasure of unbroken fellowship with the God who created you, the God who pitied you, the God who saved you, the God who washed you, the God who gave you an inheritance. You want the pleasure of pleasing that God if you're a Christian. Why would you want to keep on doing something that you know grieves Him and denies all of the goodness that He has already lavished on you. Why would you do something that you know He hates? One of the distinguishing marks of a true Christian is the desire to be pleasing to God. To obey Him 
out of free love and gladness, not just to get something from him or even just to avoid his his displeasure, but to actually give him pleasure, to please him. And that is what you want, isn't it? If you're a Christian, that is what you want. Not perfectly, not exclusively, not all the time, not, not you know, ever without um, impurity and, and compromise in there somewhere. But down in the depths of your soul, it's exactly what you want. You want to please God. And so when you don't please God, it grieves you. It makes you sad. And so Paul tells us, if you want to be pleasing to God, here's how you do it. You turn away from lust and sexual immorality. Motivate yourself with the motive of pleasing God. Number two, the motivation of doing the will of God. Look at verse three. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, that word sanctification just means um, living and acting and thinking like Jesus Christ. It means obeying God. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And in particular, it's that you abstain from sexual immorality. So holiness or sanctification in the realm of sexual purity is the will of God for you. Over and over and over again, God commands us and calls us and urges us and warns us to sexual purity. There is no confusion on this subject in the Word of God. What you'll find when you read the New Testament and you're reading the, the words of, of apostles, pastors who are writing to people in churches. People who have just become Christians. People who have been Christians for a long time. What they will always go at, almost immediately, when they start talking about living a life as a Christian, is this whole issue of sexual purity. Almost always, the very first thing that they go after is this issue of sexual purity or sexual immorality. Listen to some examples. Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10, 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Ephesians 5, 3 and 4, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Over and over and over again, God commands us to escape sexual immorality, to flee from it, to not indulge in it, to not even let it be named among us, to put it to death. This is the will of God. Abstain from sexual immorality. And if you're a Christian... If you have been made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you've known what it means to have 
have all of your sins forgiven by the work of Jesus Christ for you, if you have turned away from your own self-righteousness, and if you've come to the end of all of your hopes and your own goodness, and if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've embraced Him and trusted Him alone as the only hope for your salvation from the anger and wrath of God that you deserve, In other words, if you're a Christian, you want to to do God's will. You want to do it. You hear these words from 1 Peter 4, 1-2. You hear these words where Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Since Jesus Christ suffered for you, live no longer the rest of your life, as long as you're in the body, don't live for human passions, but for the will of God. You hear that, and that there's something in your heart that resounds with that, that resonates with it. And you say, Amen to that. That is what I want. You want to do the will of God if you're a Christian. And so I urge you, abstain from sexual immorality and from the passion of lust because this is the will of God for you. Motive number three. The motive of honor. Verse four. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Sexual purity honors God. Sexual impurity dishonors God. Sexual impurity honors God and the men and women around you who are made in the image of God. You cannot honor God and dishonor men and women who are made in God's image. Just think how dishonoring sexual immorality is. Even if you never actually do anything. Think of how dishonoring lust is. Lust reduces a human being made in the image of God into an object, a product, for you to use or abuse as you see fit. Think of how looking at pornography utterly debases and degrades and demeans the humanity of the person on the screen or in the magazine or in the video. It turns them into a commodity, an item for consumption. It turns them into a piece of meat. And that is completely, utterly, dramatically, drastically dishonoring to God. And it shows us how far our thinking is from biblical thinking when we don't see the connection between God and a human being who's made in the image of God. How many of us see ourselves as enlightened or progressive because we hate our forefathers' practice of slavery in this country? We hate slavery. And we'll we'll apologize and ask forgiveness for something we didn't do, but something our forefathers did, because we are right to hate slavery. 
And we're enlightened and we're progressive, but at the very same time, we tolerate or even enjoy pornography. How are these two things any different? Because both of them, slavery and pornography, dishonor the very humanity of men and women who are made in the image of God. They turn them into a commodity, commodity to be bought and sold and consumed for your own pleasure and for your own ends. God says you must learn to control your body in holiness and honor. Number four, the motive of Christian love. Look at the first part of verse six. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now when we sin sexually, we are not seeking the highest good of others, are we? We are not seeking the highest good of the or the woman we sin with. We're not seeking the highest good of the person we fantasize about. We're not seeking the highest good of the person in the pornography who had to debase herself or himself in order to produce the pornography. We don't have to. Uh, we're not seeking the highest good of the husband or the wife or the father of any of those people. The people that you men look at on the computer screen are real people with with husbands, with wives, with fathers, with mothers, with children. Does any of that cross your mind? It is not Christian love that motivates any kind of sexual immorality or lust. It is only and always love of self. But Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You treat others the way you would want them to treat you. And I guarantee it that none of you would want to be treated the way that these people are treated, that you're treating them. None of you. God says in 1 Corinthians 16:14, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. Can you misuse your girlfriend's body out of love? Our culture tells you it's love. You know it's not love. Can you misuse your fiancé's body out of love? Can you look at pornography out of love? Can you leer at the guys or the girls who are walking by on campus out of love? Does that have anything to do with love? Let all that you do be done in love. And the Apostle John uses very strong language that should shake us. He says in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God, everyone, most of us in this room would say, yes, I love God. I love God. Look, I'm here, aren't I? I'm singing, I'm praying, I'm worshiping God. Yeah, I love God. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. How can you claim to love God if you wrong your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your, your fiancé in this way? How can you claim to love God if you, if you wrong the father or the husband or the wife of the person you're fornicating with? How can you claim to love God if you treat the girl walking through campus or on the magazine page or on the website, like a piece of meat for your consumption. Oh, I love God. I love God. And you hate 
the people around you by using them. Christians love people. That is the one overwhelming characteristic of a man or a woman who has been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. That doesn't mean that we love perfectly, but the Apostle John does say with authority and penetrating clarity, whoever does not love abides in death. If your life is nothing but consuming and using the people around you, you don't love them. Abstain from sexual immorality. Why? Because it never springs from Christian love. Number five, the motive of God's vengeance. Look at the end of verse six. He says, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Serious, serious warning. What does an avenger do? An avenger takes vengeance. Brothers and sisters, this really does mean exactly what it says. There is a connection between your holiness, even your sexual holiness, and your salvation. Hebrews 12.14 says, Pursue the holiness of without which no one will see the Lord. Does that verse appear in your Bible as you know it? Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue the holiness. Not receive, not rest in. He's not talking about the passive position of being holy by Jesus Christ covering you with His righteousness. He's not talking about that. He says, pursue peace with all men, and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He's talking about you doing something. God makes that connection over and over again in His Word. Listen very carefully to Jesus' words from Matthew five twenty-seven to 30. If you have it, turn, it, turn to there, but just listen if you don't. Matthew five twenty-seven to 30. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Matthew 5.27, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with, with, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Do you really actually hear it? Not just the sounds coming out of my mouth, but do you hear and understand what he's saying? He is clearly saying that heaven and hell are at stake in what you do with your eyes and with your thoughts and with your imagination, let alone with what you actually do as you act it out. This is so serious, he says, that it is better for you to maim yourself, to, do, to take drastic measures against yourself so that you don't go to hell. 
Because it's better to go to heaven with a maimed body than to go to hell with a whole one. He is clearly connecting your eternal destiny with how you deal with this sin. That's what he says. Paul does exactly the same thing over and over again. If you think it's not clear and that that's just a matter of interpretation or he's using poetical language or he's being hyperbolic. Okay, let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Do you not know? Whenever you see Paul or Jesus asking a question like that, the assumption is you ought to know this. Don't you know this? Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Is that news to you? Do not be deceived, which means, of course, people are trying to deceive you, to tell you the opposite. Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. That's what it means. Or Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. And then he goes on with the rest of the list. And at the end of the list, he says, I warn you as I warned you before. That those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's not talking about getting nice things in heaven as opposed to not getting nice things in heaven. He's talking about going to heaven or going to hell. And the author of the book of Hebrews says the same, same thing in Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers, adulterous. Now listen, can, can God's Word be any clearer than that? Over and over again, there's a plain and direct connection between sexual immorality and eternal condemnation. That's what the Scripture says. Now I know what most of you are thinking. You're thinking, are you saying that a person can lose his salvation? That if I sin with my girlfriend or my boyfriend, I'm going to hell? Or are you saying that justification depends on works? That being right with God depends on you being good enough and then God will accept you. That's not at all what I'm saying. But there are tons of professing Christians and teachers who have a view of salvation that disconnects it from real life. And that nullifies the plain warnings of the Bible and puts the sinning person who claims to be a Christian beyond the reach of all of these biblical threats and warnings. And that kind of doctrine is comforting thousands on their way to hell. When Paul says, let no one deceive you, it means there are people trying to deceive you. Where there is no sanctification the word that he uses, where there's no holiness of life and no, no, no growing obedience to God, where there is no growth or fruit leading 
to more and more obedience to God, there is no justification. In other words, if, there's, if you're not obeying God more and more and more, not perfectly, but if you're not growing in your obedience to God, it's because you don't know God. You never have someone who is right with God who never grows in obedience to God. You never have life that doesn't produce fruit. Jesus says, if you don't fight lust, you won't go to heaven. Paul says, the Lord is an avenger in all these things. One who meets out vengeance. He says, if you give yourself to sexual sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. He says, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Don't lop off those verses because they don't fit your system. Stretch your theology so that your theology is big enough to hold those warnings and still be real warnings. They are real warnings. You can't say, oh, well, I'm glad I'm a Christian. I don't have to worry about that anymore. They're real warnings. Paul says in our passage, I solemnly warned you. What's the point of a warning if there's no danger? No, your justification, your standing before God does not depend on your works. You must come to Him with an empty hand and a humble heart. But when God freely accepts you in His Son, He accepts you with an agenda. And He will not let you spurn Him and reject Him and rebel against Him. He will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you and cause you to walk in His ways and obey His commandments. That's what He promised to do. That's what He has done if you're a Christian. And there will be results from that. And if that means nothing to you, if God's clear command for you to pursue sexual purity and to abstain from sexual immorality falls on deaf ears, you are the rightful recipient of these stern warnings. You have no right to claim the forgiveness of God if you are stiff-arming the commands of God. If you have a theology that says, yes, I will have Jesus as my Savior, but I will never have to bow my knee to Him or obey Him. You have never heard the Gospel. Brothers and sisters, do not harden your hearts against God's clear call to sexual purity. He gives you all kinds of motives. It pleases God. It's the will of God. It honors God and those made in His image. It expresses Christian love. It avoids God's vengeance. And these things aren't just my opinion. If you blow off this sermon, you're not just ignoring me. He says in verse 8, look at what he says. Therefore, whoever disregards this, why does he say that? He expects that there will be people sitting in this room who will disregard this. And who tomorrow will do exactly the same thing they did yesterday and who will blow it off. He expects there to be people disregarding this. He says, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Don't disregard God. Don't blow Him off. 
If you blow him off, you will die. But here's the most important question we can ask of this passage. It's how. How can I do this? How can I abstain from sexual immorality? How can I live not in the passion of lust? I understand. I know. I know my conscience gnaws at me all the time. I know that I'm not supposed to do this. We feel bad every time, you know, my girlfriend and I make out or whatever. I know it's wrong. I feel condemned. I feel like there's no hope for me because I've been trying to fight this for years. So what do I do? The answer is in verses 4 and 5. It's not a quick answer. It's not an easy answer. But it's one that's deep and powerful. Verses 4 and 5. He says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, do you hear what he's saying? Don't act like the Gentiles who don't know God. When you give away to, to, to the passion of lust, you act like people who do not know God. Which means that knowing God is the path to sexual purity. Not just knowing facts about God, but knowing God. Knowing Him as a person. Knowing Him as your Father. Knowing Him as the kind of God who enters into personal, intimate relationship with sinners like you and me. Now, how does that work? What is it about knowing God like this that will enable you to abstain and fight sexual immorality? What, what ways do you need to know Him? There are two things about God that will strengthen you in your fight against sexual immorality. If you embrace them and cling to them and grow in them. Number one, know, know how pleasurable God is. Knowing God enables you to abstain from sexual immorality because knowing God gives you pleasure. Now, for some of you, that's, that, that sounds weird. Because you don't know what it means to have pleasure as a result of your relationship with God. You know what it feels like to have condemnation and duty, but you have no idea what it means to have pleasure. That's why all of your fighting against your immorality doesn't work. Think of it like this. What is the bait on the hook of sexual immorality? There's a hook. That's why he says, soberly warns you. That's why God is the avenger. There is a hook. What's the bait on the hook? When... Um, When sexual immorality comes up to you and whispers in your ear, what does it say? It says, come on, do it. You'll be miserable. You'll end in eternal ruin. Your paths will go down to death. It'll be great. Come on. Is that what happens? What happens is the, the, the bait on the hook is pleasure. This is the way it is with any sin. You know this. This is the way it is with any sin. The bait on the hook is pleasure. It makes promises of pleasure. You'll be happy. It'll feel good. You'll have pleasure. You'll be enlightened. You'll be progressive. It won't hurt anybody. It's consensual. 
We love each other. How do you fight against that? The major way to fight against that is to see that real pleasure is found in knowing God and loving God and walking in fellowship with God. That you've never tasted real pleasure if you've never tasted it in relationship to God. And that's the way many of us are. We can't fight against the pleasure, the bait on the hook of sexual immorality because we think that that's what pleasure is. And we've never tasted anything else. We think that all the meat in the world comes in little cans with a pop top that you slip out. And we've never tasted steak. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 36, 7 and 8 says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. There is eternal pleasure in God. There is fullness of joy in Him. And you really can feast on the abundance of His house and drink of His, his river of delight. Not drudgery, not slugging it out, but delight. And the more you taste that eternal, solid, genuine pleasure and delight and fullness that come from an intimate relationship with God, the more equipped you are to say no to the empty, deceptive temptations of sexual immorality. Once you've tasted real pleasure, the counterfeit, you see it for what it is. Pursue knowing how pleasurable God is. Secondly, and lastly, know how powerful He is. Look up, if you have your Bible open, look up to 1 Thessalonians 3, just up the page, verses 11 to 13. And hear these words. This is a benediction or a prayer that Paul gives. And he says, Now may our God and Father Himself, Himself, personal God, May our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to You and may the Lord make You increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for You so that He may establish Your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Do you hear the the power and the promise and the hope in those words? Do you hear it? Jesus Christ will make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Jesus Christ will establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Your holiness is the work of Christ by His Almighty Spirit. Yes, you must pray for it. Yes, you must fight for it. But in the end, be encouraged. You are not left to yourself to win this war. Know and embrace and hope in God's power that is at work in you who believe in Jesus Christ. If you have fought this sin for years and years and you think that you're hopeless, what you're saying is Jesus Christ is powerless. 
And He's met His match in you. Faithless, unbelieving, dishonoring to God, blasphemous to say that God has met His match in you. Of course, He can empower you to fight your sin. And He will. There is hope and mercy and power and forgiveness for you who struggle with sexual sin, but there is also warning for you who disregard God and think that you can live a life of lust and immorality and spurred God's commands. And I plead with you, do not disregard God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Now, if you're a person this morning who's here who does not know the forgiveness and power and hope that come from knowing God through His Son, Jesus Christ, then your greatest need is to turn to Him for mercy. Your greatest need is to turn away from your rebellion. God has given you laws and commandments and you've broken every one of them. You must turn away from your rebellion against the king. And you must turn away from your self-righteousness that says, I'm better than him, so I must be okay. And you must turn to Jesus Christ and trust in his life and death in your place. And if you do that, you will be a person who knows the true and living God. And you will find pleasure and power in him. And you will be able to abstain from sexual immorality and from all of the death and destruction and brokenness that comes from it. Will you turn to Jesus Christ or not? And if any of you have struggles with these kinds of sins, or if any of you want to know more about trusting Jesus Christ for the first time, please come and talk to us. Please come and talk to us. This is not something to disregard and brush aside. We're here to help you. We're not here to crush you or despise you or disgrace you. Come and find help and hope in Jesus Christ.